Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. The Tour Divide route spans 2,670 miles and about 192,000 feet of climbing from Banff, Alberta to the U.S.-Mexico border near Antelope Wells, New Mexico. And Lachlan Morton just traversed it in a record-setting and breathtakingly fast time of 12 days, 12 hours, and 21 minutes. So we sat down with him to chat about what it takes to pull off an effort like that, from the preparation and planning to nutrition, bike setup, and his rather unconventional sleep plan that involved him just getting actually quite a bit more rest than most of the previous fast near record setting paces had been. And it's pretty interesting chat. Lachlan covers everything from being worried about bears in the northern part of the U.S. and Canada to his predilection for payday bars as a nutritional source and tells some pretty funny stories about the whole endeavor and it's a fun one. So we'll get right into it in a second. But before we do, would just like to encourage you to take a moment to check out our Blister Plus membership and everything that it entails, including the ability to send us an email and get a personalized recommendation for your next bike, ski, whatever purchase and talk through stuff like your bike setup, suspension setup, whatever it is you need help with. We're here to help. So check out the link in the show notes and with that, let's get right to my conversation with Lachlan Morton. Well, Lachlan, great to sit down and chat. And I guess just first off, congrats on the Tour Divide record that you've just set and kind of have that be the main topic of conversation here. And before we get going, though, how are you doing and where are you today? Yeah, mate, I'm good. Uh, I'm in Boulder. Uh, I'm moving house at the moment, so just boxing everything up. Um, and, yeah, getting a trailer together to drive over to California, moving out there. But, um, yeah, that's what's going on. Fair enough. Well, appreciate you taking the time to chat. I missed all that. No, moving's the worst. But, uh, I mean, like I said, up top, kind of main thing going on right now is – the or big news of late, I suppose, the better way to put it is your recent record setting effort on the Tour Divide route. And we'll go into a whole lot more detail about what that entailed in a few here, but just sort of to set the stage, could you give us a rundown on what the Tour Divide is for folks who might not be familiar? Uh, yeah, it's like a it's a bikepacking route that runs from uh, Banff in Canada down to uh, Antelope Wells on the border of New Mexico and Mexico. Uh, and it kind of um, stays as close to the the actual divide uh, as possible. Um, and, yeah, she's a few thousand kilom- uh, miles. I think it's four and a half thousand kilometers. Um, so it's just a big old, big old bike ride right through the, the middle of America basically. <laughs> Yeah, and for the stats and imperial units over here, but 2,670 miles and uh, about 192,000 feet of climbing is what I found for the route. And uh, you did that in just over 
12 and a half days. So quite an effort to put it lightly, I am sure. And, you know, you mentioned it sort of being over the top of the continental divide or as nearly as it can follow that. But what's the route like? I mean, principally on dirt kind of tell us more about sort of what the whole route looks like. Yeah. Yeah. It's predominantly off-road. Um, it's a mix of kind of like regular sort of forest roads. Uh, and then some, I guess more technical kind of mountain, um, dual track and then, uh, a little bit of single track. There's not a whole, whole like bunch of single track, but there is some, um, and then, yeah, there's a few road sections kind of peppered in there, but um, predominantly, yeah, just like everywhere from very chunky double track to very smooth kind of nice gravel roads. So um, you get a bit of everything. Uh, the The challenge, I think, is not necessarily, you know, there's no one section. If you compare it to something like... Um, Colorado Trail or something, for example, is a lot more technical and I think any one part is probably more difficult than the divide route, but it's just push and you're sort of in remote areas for so long that that's kind of the the biggest challenge, I think, the, the divide kind of throws at you. Right. And, you know, certainly just that much distance and elevation on really – any terrain's not going to be easy. Yeah, yeah, and it's also just like logistically, it's um, it's like a lot to research. <laughs> you know, uh, there's like um, a lot of spots where it's a long way between resupplies, and um, yeah, it's sort of one of those things that like I started to do some research like a week or ten days before, and kind of was jumping into it, and then. Just did enough to like make sure I wasn't going to get in trouble, but it's one of those routes that's so big you can't really get your head around it until you just go and ride it um, because it's such a long way, you know. Um, So you're kind of just learning on the fly, really. Right. And so you're saying you really only kind of started nailing down the details of where you could resupply and that kind of stuff a couple of weeks prior? Yeah, it was basically all in the week before. Uh, so, like, I was doing a lot of racing this year. Uh, I always planned to do the divide, um, and I've been wanting to do it for a few years, but um, it was kind of like trying to find somewhere to squeeze it in, and then I worked out I could get, you know, on the route and fit it in between races um, towards the end of August, no, start of September, and then it was like once I had the date, um, I was kind of racing. I did Leadville and Break Epic and Steamboat kind of all back to back. And then from when that finished, I had about a week until the start. Um, and I don't like to get like, you know, I don't want to do, I like to just do the one thing I'm doing at the moment, like, you know, more properly. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really get into like any major uh, route research until that week before um, and then just tried to keep it like there's so much information out there um, that like you can very much like overwhelm yourself with it but 
Um, basically, I just tried to nail down like the distance between the resupplies uh, and then um, the little bit of a look at uh, like weather kind of trends. Um, and beyond that, um, yeah, not not a great deal. Um, which made it nice, to be honest, like uh, kind of working out the route like as you went. Uh, I had a friend who'd, who'd written it and he gave me some of his notes, which were good because there was just more like a conversational kind of talk through, you know, like um, which I liked. So, yeah, um, it was definitely like uh, a lot of learning on the fly, which is nice, you know, it's kind of like a cool way to do it. It does mean you get caught out. Uh, every now and then, but um, yeah, I think that's all part of the appeal. Right. And I guess we should probably elaborate too, that part of the ethos of the tour divide race is that it's meant to be self-supported. So, and one of the things that they make a big point of emphasis on is that you can stop and resupply in town. You can stay in a hotel, do whatever, but basically need to do things that are just, generally publicly available to whoever might be attempting it rather than having more formalized support than that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So basically you're just relying on shops, lots of gas stations, um, hotels where you can find them, you know, campgrounds. Um, and then, you know, in some spots of the routes where it's like more remote, there's like a few crucial kind of like water fill ups in campgrounds and stuff that you need to get to, um, to make the route work, but um, yeah, you basically you basically just surviving town to town, and like to dumb it all down, you're kind of trying to work out all right, how long is it going to take me to get from this general store to like that gas station, and that gas station is going to be open at five a.m. You know, so like you you basically just trying to work things out that way, um, and you sort of need to do enough research to know when crucial spots will be open um, and have like a general idea of how long it's going to take you to get between them. Um, that's kind of like dumbing it right down, but that's really kind of the the way I approach it is I'll give myself like a rough idea of a speed I think I could ride uh, and then, you know, plus or minus and then sort of just uh, work out my day that way. Um, but it's a nice way to do a route like that, you know, um, you're kind of forced to engage a lot more than you would if you were doing something like that supported. Uh, and I think you generally get a a better feel for the people, the towns. Um, and also, yeah, I think you you get a better respect for how harsh some of that terrain is, you know, when you're like, you're like, how did people, you know, come through here or survive here for thousands of years when um, I'm like trying to get through here in 10 hours and it feels like uh, I'm on the moon. So um, yeah, it's a cool, it's a like format I enjoy. Um, So yeah, I I enjoy that element of it, even though sometimes it means you do um, mess up and run out of food or, you know, go a bit thirsty for a while. I think it's a cool way of doing it. And those routes are so, so well written that um, the the towns and resupply points are all super accommodating, you know, to bike riders, which definitely, you know, helps. 
certainly. And so yeah, in light of all that, kind of how granular was your planning for where you were going to be stopping when and that kind of thing? You know, obviously you can kind of roughly map it out, but you're never going to be entirely precise about how long each leg's going to take and all that kind of stuff either. And so how do you approach kind of balancing those two things and not driving yourself insane, trying to have it planned out to the nth degree that you won't ever nail anyway? Yeah, I mean, so it wasn't really till like the the day before I really like looked at the the distances properly and started looking at timing um, and rough ideas of like sleep patterns and like just nailing in like crucial spots um, because I think there's there's definitely like crux points on the route that uh, if you either miss because things are closed or like um, you know you get in too early so you got to wait things like that that could bring you undone pretty quickly or like if you didn't look at in a bit more depth like you might just make a very poor decision you know when you're tired or something um so i definitely looked at uh a rough idea of what timing could look like um and but the thing i didn't take into account i didn't look at any uh elevation details um, so it was all just like a very general estimate that you would kind of travel at a similar speed all the time, um, which is just like, that's not how it works. But I kind of had like an idea of how it might spin out over like a two week period. Uh, but it wasn't like super precise. Um, and you know, it definitely, uh, it was like a very loose kind of framework that, um, I sort of worked in and then after a certain point, um, it was just very much like starting to play it by ear. But I think that works on that route. Like as you get more comfortable, um, I was definitely uh, nervous. Well, not nervous. I just, I don't have a lot of experience um, sleeping in like grizzly territory and I knew that would play my mind. So I was trying to stick to, plan where I could sleep indoors as much as I could for that first period until we sort of hit Wyoming, um, which I managed pretty well. It was only one night I think I slept outside. Um, but, yeah, that was more so just for, like, to make sure I got, like, a decent sleep. I didn't want to be, like, you know, getting up at every, like, you know, twig breaking or rustle in the bushes. So, um yeah, I was a little more uh, well-researched there. And then it, it also, like, it gets warmer, uh, easy to sleep anywhere, I think. And, and, I, and I was also just then familiar with the terrain sort of from the middle of Wyoming. So from there, I just basically played it by ear, uh, worked out where I would get, and then make sure I hit the, the resupply points. But beyond that, it was just kind of like thinking along. Yeah, I mean, that very much makes sense, and certainly yeah. grizzlies are no joke. It's still kind of funny having the Australian coming over here and getting worried about our fauna, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it's all, uh, like, it's all about what you're familiar with, you know? Uh, and, like, when I first moved to Colorado, I was, like, scared of, uh, like, black bears, and then 
I like having coming contact with them, you know, multiple times since I've lived here. You start you start to realize like, oh, they're pretty like scared of me. Um, not to say that like you don't show respect, but it's like you just kind of gain a familiarity. Whereas, um, like a grizzly bear, I've never seen, uh, and you know, it's like, I mean, I th- I feel like it's the same idea as a great white shark in Australia. <laughs> same thing, like you just. Um, it's it's an unfamiliar thing that uh, I basically just didn't want to get myself into a dumb situation because of lack of experience or being naive. Or um, so I definitely kind of gave it respect. Probably like way more cautious than potentially need to be. But um, yeah, again, you know, it's just like an experience thing. Yeah, certainly the right side to be airing on for sure. So, and well, you mentioned earlier having, you know, the possibility of just missing a bit of timing and getting caught out by, you know, store being closed or whatever, those kind of little issues. Did anything particularly go wrong along those lines or did you manage to make it all go pretty smoothly? Yeah, not like I never, I ran out of food once uh, before Evando, um, because I didn't do enough of a resupply when I was in Whitefish uh, because, like, I did this big day and the weather was, like, super wet and really cold and I was sleeping in Whitefish that night and so I had to resupply because I was going to leave so early everything would be closed, um, like, the night before. But I was, like, soaked to the bone, shivering, like, trying to walk around this uh, store to get, like, enough for the next day. Um and just rushed it basically and didn't didn't like actually think about what I was buying and just was like, oh, I've got heaps of stuff, like it'll be fine. And then like started the ride the next day and then started to like crunch the numbers in my head and I was like, oh, wow, actually I'm going to be a bit light here and then ran out for probably not long, like only four or five hours I would say, um, which uh, – it's not the end of the world. It's just more, it always has like a knock on effect, you know? Um, Cause like any moment you're, your body's under fueled, you've either got to like slow down or just take the deficit. Um, so I kind of just took the deficit and then uh, the next, you kind of spend like a day trying to catch up a bit. Um, but it was never like, it was never a real issue um, in the, the basin uh in Wyoming it, it was like very wet and uh muddy so it goes from being like cruising along at uh you know 18 miles an hour and then all of a sudden you're like walking for long stretches because of the mud uh which obviously like blows out you know timing like massively uh and I was really banking on pushing through that stretch um in in one go and there was a moment when it was really really muddy and uh i would have like i I basically i really had to make that stretch Uh, otherwise i would have gone to bed hungry and then still had like three or four hours to ride um but luckily kind of just like persisted a bit and found some some dry roads that i can actually still make it to the next point that night. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Beyond that, everything else 
worked pretty well, you know. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of info out there um, that helps a lot, like in terms of timing and stuff. And yeah, managed to just like um, hit everything as I needed to, which was great. Yeah, I mean, and obviously worked out pretty well given final time. But how do you go about keeping track of calorie intake and nutrition and pacing on an effort like that where over that much time and presumably just being that exhausted and not thinking very well and being on a schedule and needing to make decisions quickly and just keep moving. How do you kind of manage that stuff and keep it organized? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, yeah, like I don't have like a nutrition plan, so to speak. Um, because I've learned that like you have to be very flexible on a, an effort like that because uh, you don't know what's going to be available. Um, you do need to be able to like stomach most things. Um, so like I, I generally keep like a pretty lax um, fueling nutrition diet generally <laughs> on racing, whatever. Um, but my – as like a minimum – in my head, I always try and have at least like a king size like candy bar, basically, or like the equivalent of um, for every hour of writing. It's like a base, you know. So I'm like, if I, I won't always make that like oh my, that's my whole strategy. But like, if I go somewhere and it's like ten o'clock at night and I'm trying to find somewhere to sleep and I'm like, all right, I think I'm gonna have to ride like. 12 hours tomorrow morning, you know, before I find somewhere else, I'm like, I'll make sure I've got at least 12, <laughs> you know, and that's like an easy, I'm like, I'll be good then. Uh, and then like try, I don't like force one down every hour if I'm not hungry um, because I think like once you're, I mean, in the first few days, I do think you have to force more food than uh, you want. Because uh, your body's not really in tune with what's happening yet, but then once you you settle in after basically three days, um, I think your body's cravings are pretty uh, in tune with what it needs. Um, and you like, for what I find anyway, like you start to need less water and fluid, um, and like your electrolyte, like sodium cravings become really um like spot on like when you you need salt and you crave salt it's generally because that's what your body needs um and then when you're thirsty it's it's like okay i need to but if you're just like pushing water i don't think um your body always needs it it's just slowly getting efficient at things uh so yeah i try to be kind of as in tune as i can be with like what um i feel like i want and yeah, like, I mean, the other thing I was because because I was sleeping um, like consistently every night and like for a good stretch, that was like a really like good opportunity to catch up on like nutrition. So like, I would make sure I had like a good amount of food right before I slept. So generally, that meant like 
whatever, and it was in like the hot bar at like a gas station, you know, I might get like three of the burgers or something and just like jam them down and then try and drink like a liter of chocolate milk or something before I fell asleep. And then that way your body had like enough when it was sleeping to like actually kind of get a bit of a surplus to where you would recover. Um, but yeah, there's not like, um, before I did like the, I did the alt tour thing a few years ago, which was like a thing around France, um, and similar kind of duration, but on a road bike and there, I was more involved with the, the team racing element at that point. And the team nutritionist tried to come up with some like plan, like a specific, you know, calories to hit and, um, you know, macros and everything. And it just like, it was really, it's great in theory and I'm sure it would work really well, but just like the realities of taking on something like that, you end up, I, I feel like you would end up just burning so much more in stress, you know, mental matches, trying to make that thing work than you would have if just like, you know, um, not nailing everything, but sort of keeping on top of things. So yeah, that's, that's the way I go about it. There is, there is thought that goes into it for sure. And the biggest thing is to never run out, like you know, and, and find things that like you can eat no matter what, like, which for me, um, up until probably the last like three days, I reckon was always like payday bars. I just can just eat those no matter what. Um, and they don't really melt. And for whatever reason, I think it's because they're a bit salty and sweet. Like I don't really blow out on the, the flavor. So I'm always like, oh, I can get one of those down. Um, and yeah, just leaning into whatever that thing you'd like to eat is and just making sure you have enough basically. <laughs> well, you mentioned, you said until the last three days you were doing okay on paydays. So I take it you kind of hit a wall on those at some point. Yeah. Yeah, well, there was like, I did this one resupply uh, where I'm trying to think exactly where I was. I think it was right in Southern Colorado and it was a really long stretch. Um, and I was like, obviously mentally pretty blown out, like going into the resupply. And that was all I bought because <laughs> I was like, I, I think I needed 18 of the like it was going to be 18 hours. So I was just like, all right, I'm not just going to get 18 payloads and just get moving now. And yeah, that was like a long stretch to be just on <laughs> one thing. And like, by the time I got to like the 15th one, I was just like, dude, I can't do this. <laughs> this is too much. <laughs> so I just kind of switched it up from there. But um, yeah, everyone's got their limits. <laughs> no, that sounds, not that I've ever done anything of this scale but something that i have a hard time with on bigger endurance stuff kind of you know of my own scale we'll say um is just varying food enough to keep yeah. it interesting i just i have a really hard time eating the same thing over and over again for a long time in a row and yeah. just making myself do that becomes a chore and sure i don't know a weakness of my skill set on that stuff i guess among <laughs> a bunch but um yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know, I, I find that um, like most of the enjoyment of uh, eating 
pretty much goes on an event like that. Like it's more of uh, a chore or like something that, like a tool to help you feel better in whatever else you're doing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The thing that I enjoyed the most in the like few days after Divide was just like being really hungry and then eating like a, a sit-down meal, not like rushing through food, you know, just like actually kind of sitting down and enjoying that process because, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, it sort of becomes like a like a means to an end in a way, you know. Like no one wants to sit down and drink like two litres of milk, you know, like in the sitting, like, but if you like, if you know that that's what's going to make you feel better in like five hours' time, then you just do that. So, um, yeah. Right. And a minute ago, you kind of touched on your sleep strategy, but we'd love to go into that in a little bit more detail, too. I think one thing I found interesting and kind of reading up a little bit and prep for this was just that you talked about really making an emphasis on sleeping quite a bit, particularly relative to some of the folks who've put down the other relatively fast times on the, the route and sort of, yeah, what did you set as your strategy and what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, I mean, it basically came about like uh, during, I did the Tour of Colorado, not Tour of Colorado, uh, Colorado Trail last year um, as like an FKT thing and Three and a half days of riding. And I think during that whole period, I think I slept like six hours, um, which is on that route, like actually a decent amount. But in reality, it's like not nearly enough to function like as a, you know, proper person. Uh, And I just like, I've done it before. I've done other events where I haven't slept and like, um, there's a period where I enjoyed like exploring that and it was interesting because your brain does like strange things. Um, but then it got to a point when I was like, oh, I don't actually enjoy this anymore. And it's taking away from like my experience of riding here. Um, and also like I found mentally after doing something like that, um, it would take a long time to like, get back online mentally. Um, so I was like, there's obviously something uh, detrimental, you know, that's going on by pushing the sleep. Uh, so I just kind of made a decision that I was like, I don't really want to do that again or take it to like an extreme. Um, and then sort of grappled with like what that would mean in terms of like how competitive you could be uh, in like an ultra event. And then just like wanted to explore, you know, how fast you could go and get like six hours of of rest every night. Uh, So that was like my approach. I kind of landed on like the six hour stoppage uh, because I think that that's kind of like the least you can really do and still function normally and recover. Um, And for me, I just kind of found that that was like a sustainable amount. Um, and I'd said before I was going to do 12 hours out of 48 just to give myself like a leeway um, because like things could happen where 
you kind of need to keep moving sometimes, especially when you when you're trying to do something uh, like in a fast sort of format. Um, you need to leave room for errors that you can make because you do, um, just because your kind of decision-making gets clouded by, like, ambition sometimes. So you might make dumb choices with weather or, like, um, resupply or things like that where, like, okay, you're like, if I keep riding now, I'll stay warm and then I can sleep double the next night or, like, you know, I missed the resupply, so I actually need to keep moving so I can get enough food because I don't have enough food to sleep here or whatever. Um, so I had that contingency um, but didn't actually – I didn't need that. I ended up stopping for six hours like every night consistently and it was like amazing. Um, and, yeah, couldn't imagine really doing it another way. Um, like – and – I mean, you could, for sure you can, but, like, couldn't imagine enjoying it very much on anything less. Um, like, there was one night after my, like, derailleur stopped working. So I stopped and uh, got a hotel. And normally, like, if I stopped in a hotel, I could kind of stop and be asleep within almost 15 minutes. <laughs> like, I was really dialed. I could get through the shower, get in, and just like have everything on charge. I was just super quick in and out, and then probably fifteen minutes the other side, get moving again. So I could sleep a full five and a half hours. Um, but this night, I like was like messing around, trying to get like a wireless derailleur back online, and lost like half an hour of sleep. Which I was like, it's just what it is. Like I can deal with that. Um, but immediately noticed it the next day and I rode for like three hours um, and then I was like, I haven't had enough sleep. So I just stopped there on the side of the road and slept uh, to like catch it up and then caught back up that amount. And that kind of like set in my head, I was like, all right, I think I'm basically on the ballpark here of what my kind of minimum amount to function the way I want is, you know? So, um, yeah, I was really happy with like that approach. Um, and it also made it like the sleep I got was better because in a way I was forcing myself to stop anyway. So normally doing something like that, you kind of ride until you're like, oh, shit, I really have to stop now. Like I'm, you know, can't stay awake. And then you fall asleep and you, you sort of set a time Roughly, there's probably a little bit less than you need, but then you wake up a bunch because you're like, ah, should I go? You know, like, so in, in this way, I was like, okay, I have to stop anyway and I could make a good decision on where I was going to stop, you know, because I'm like, I'm not going to keep pushing until it's really late. You know, I could stop it. So sometimes I stopped at like six in the afternoon or in the early evening just because I was like, oh, I'm going to stop anyway. I might as well stop somewhere where there's food and a bed, <laughs> you know. And then, um, like, so, yeah, I was really happy with the way that approach unfolded because um, I definitely thought there were going to be some spots that it wouldn't really work out, but it worked out, like, bang on. So it was great. Yeah, having that kind of enforcement to make yourself not, second guess things and be like, ah, well, should I just start going again? Really makes a lot of sense that that would be an effective way to 
actually get yourself some good quality sleep in addition to sleeping at all, you know, and streamline that. Totally. And like, even with like that amount of sleep and being um, in a better state of mind mentally, I still made poor decisions like that um, were like somewhat dangerous in certain points. Right. Um, Like you still do that. Just, I mean, it's kind of goes hand in hand with taking on anything that big, but I can't imagine how many other poor decisions I would have made if I was sleeping less, you know, (laughs) like I was like, it would just be borderline reckless. Um, So also in like uh, just, just being safe on a route like that, I feel like I would have to have that much sleep. Otherwise um, there'd be a a degree of like risk involved. What do you see as being some of those not so great decisions? I mean, I think like I made poor decisions in terms of, uh, pushing through weather that I shouldn't have. Um, and some of that came down to just not taking the time to have a look ahead to work out how bad it was actually going to be. Uh, and then some of that came down to not researching what that stretch of route looked like. Um, so that was like a combination of things. But instead of just um, taking time to be like, all right, I need to actually let this weather pass before I go through. Um, I was like, ah, I think I can make this, <laughs> you know, uh, like and kind of pushing in. And then even when I sort of realized that the weather was quite extreme and I was in like not a good spot, like there was a, a couple of, basically the, the times that I really needed to stop because I was like uh, in trouble you know, either being hypothermic or enlightening or whatever it was, um, I'd already pushed past the point where I could safely stop. Um, and that kind of came down to, yeah, just like a split sort of second decision instead of taking time to really think about the repercussions of, you know, continuing on. Um, just like, oh, no, I should be right. <laughs> You know, which like um, is is an easy. I mean, it's one of those things that, like, at the time, you like you can kind of laugh off and be like, "Ah, oh, yeah, fuck it, I'll just keep going." But you know, it, a few hours down the track, it can turn into something like um, a lot more serious. So yeah, I think, uh, and the route kind of suckers you in that way. Like, I feel like, say on Colorado Trail, you're very aware that you're exposed and remote um whereas i feel like you can get you know false sense of security on divide because there are stretches where you can really cover a lot of ground um and you're below tree line or whatever and it doesn't feel um as remote or exposed when, when in reality it's the same so um yeah definitely like learned a few things for sure um and learned on the hard way but uh yeah i think like those things like on not and then there is always the risk of um, you know I mean a lot of it is as I said remote so there's not a lot of traffic you don't see many cars but there are some stretches where there's short but concentrated periods of traffic um, which like if you're not uh, functioning 
at your full capacity. One, it means that you're more likely to make a stake, but two, which I think is probably more uh, relevant, is you can't you can't um, factor for someone else's mistake, uh, which like you know the the chances of that happening are they're not you know minuscule. Like people do make mistakes, uh, especially if if you're riding your bike at two a.m. Um, chances are the people who are on the road also haven't slept much, you know, or have just woken up or like, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, those uh, those are, the I would say, the biggest risks. Um, so, yeah, that just kind of comes down to um, all decision-making, I think. And that, uh, I think, kind of definitely gets diminished um, the less, you know, proper rest you have. Right. How much do you think kind of the fact that you just needed to squeeze this effort into the window that you had between other things on your race calendar and what have you contributed to that too? Because, you know, you sort of mentioned that this is something you've been thinking about doing for quite a while, but only sort of pulled the trigger on within a fairly tight window because an opportunity popped up to do it. And did that factor in too? Yeah, I mean, um, I wanted to do it fast, um, like because I enjoy that that mindset. Um, you know, having ridden it, I'd love to go and do it slow <laughs> and take like six weeks. I think would be a good amount of time to do it. Um, but yeah, I get, I I thought um, like sleeping the amount I was going to sleep. Uh, I didn't think it would be possible to go faster than when Michael did it. Um, so I was factoring it like going to take 15 days, probably 15 to 16 days. Um, and kind of had that like window. Um, and that would have meant I would have probably gone straight from the finishing flying straight to the next race, uh, which would have been miserable. So it was nice to have like a few extra days there to recover before that next race. But um, like I, that's how long I thought it would take and I have enough of a window there. Uh, I was hoping to start like a bit earlier, um, but I had to wait a few extra days uh, because my brother who was shooting the the ride, um, like filming it, he, he had like another project i think so i had sort of had to wait anyway there was like a little bit of wiggle room um and like if it meant you know i had to skip the next race to get that route done i think i would have done it because i was like very invested once you get into it you get so invested that like um it kind of becomes your only real priority uh so yeah that was like the time i had i think it would be nice to do it like earlier um, just with regards to weather and stuff. But end of the day, um, I, I kind of had been like putting it off because of that for a few years. So I was like, let's just go and do it. Uh, so yeah, that's just when it worked out. And well, how about just kind of talking about your bike setup and gear that you're bringing along for that kind of thing? Obviously, I'm sure you're trying to balance traveling light of course with having spares and clothes and everything you'd need to sort of 
do it safely and get yourself out of a jam if need be and how'd you approach all that stuff yeah i think uh my mindset has shifted a lot since i first did these which was like trying to take it absolutely as little as possible um to making sure i have enough as you said to be like comfortable and be able to get yourself out of the jam um like i if you want like a basic rundown like i always divide it into sort of um like clothing then my sleep setup uh and then you have spares and then electronical stuff in terms of like power banks and lights and batteries and wahoos and that kind of stuff that's the way i divide it in my head so when i pack that's like basically the lists i make um and for this uh there was a similar i would say a similar kind of setup to um like the colorado trail in terms of what i took uh except i had more space for food uh, and more space, like extra space in terms of just like I knew on a route that long, you would pick up, pick things up that you needed that like you didn't pack, <laughs> which like for me, like I ended up buying more gloves um, and just like various little things that end up taking up space. And so it's nice to have space. So I, I had more contingency for room. So I basically had two 10 liter like panniers on the back uh, on like a tail fin rack and then the big bag is about 25 liters I think might be just under that but more or less um, and in that I took like uh, a bivy uh, with a pole and pegs so it's, it's almost like a one man tent really um, that because I don't like the bivvies that really sit on you um, I just feel like you end, you end up getting so wet and gross in there that like you're not comfortable so you don't sleep well I took that um, and then I like weighed up between taking a lighter sleeping bag and then like a full mat, uh, like either a blow-up or a foam. Um, I like the foam roll-up ones better. Um, but then I was like, oh, or I could just take like a really heavy, badass sleeping bag that was good to like, it was like a minus 15, I think. Um so like overkill, but you just know you're good. Uh, and then skimp on the mat, which is what I ended up doing uh, because I realized that like I sleep pretty well just on my back um, and I could find like soft ground most places. So that was what I took. Uh, didn't take a pillow because I've worked out that it's more comfortable if I just sleep with my helmet on. <laughs> um, which is like it looks ridiculous but like I sleep with my helmet on and it holds my head in like the perfect spot and I've used those like blow up pillows forever and I just hate them um, I slide around on them and like so yeah that was I guess the sleep stuff uh, for clothing um, I thought I had heaps but uh, I could have used more like I had you know, two different undershirts that were made of wool, one like long sleeve with the neck, uh, one short sleeve. And then I had like a down jacket, a jacket that went over that that also had like a small amount of down that was waterproof with a hood. Uh, and then a rain jacket that went over all of that with a hood. Um, arm warmers, leg warmers, uh, and then rain pants. 
and still managed to get cold, um, like wearing all of that. <laughs> so like it was, um, there was a few just like hectic, wet, cold days that you can't really ever have enough for probably. Like you, when you're riding that long, everything just slowly gets soaked. Um, so you just kind of need to be able to rotate and then you start to rotate and then you just can't get enough dry kit again, basically. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know if they're, I mean, yeah, I, th- I do think there are ways I could have done the like clothing and layering better, but that was only through going through that experience. With the amount of experience I had before, I was like, this is overkill. But anyway, um, and then, yeah, electronic stuff. I took two power banks, uh, so like a 25,000 milliamp, is that what they call it, and then a 20,000. Um, didn't use the second one at all, um, but was glad to have it. You know, just it's nice to know that you have backup. Uh and then charges for like the biggest charging uh requirements are for like your Wahoo um to keep like the route. And I always take a backup one of those, which I used once. So I had two Wahoos and then uh lights. I always take a lot of lights now. Um so I had two they're fifteen thousand lumen uh well up to don't really run them at that but uh on the uh, not fifteen thousand fifteen hundred uh on the handlebars and then uh headlight and i run them all they're like it's phoenix is the brand and they all use the same battery um and this battery you can basically uh just plug straight into it it has like a little usb port on it so i had two of those spare so i could use them for any um which was helpful and then you have to charge your derailleur quite a lot, um, which is a SRAM wireless one. Um, so I had three batteries for that that I could just keep rotating because um, you'd probably go through one and a half a day, I would say. Um, just because you're on a heavy bike, you do a lot of shifting. <laughs> like it's, people don't realize that like it's quite – they're like, how would you go through so much power? And you're like, well, one, I'm riding a lot, but two, like you basically go from – really small to really big like constantly because anytime you're going downhill you can carry so much speed on a heavy bike and then anytime you're going uphill it's so slow that you're shifting all the way back to the 52 so um yeah that was like a a rough very rough overview of uh what i took there is a video online somewhere that i did afterwards um when i was very tired (laughs) but i basically nailed what was in there so if you really desperate to see like what was in every bag uh, you can have a look because um, then obviously I had a, a, a bag of spares but I won't go into that um, but then the bike setup itself I rode a hardtail I would probably like it was great um, I would even like you know side towards a full suspension but I wanted to have the, the space um, you know like there's no I mean, there's there's small parts of the course where you would really rather be on a full suspension, but I just think as a whole, you know, like it's so nice to have um, just a soft bike that takes that load off your off your bike, uh, and it also then takes load off just equipment, you know. Um, so I think like the whole stress on tires and everything would be um, quite a bit less. Uh, so yeah, like. I, I would like to, if I did it again, I would like to explore how to 
carry enough on a um, on a full suspension bike. I think that'd be nice. But the hardtail was great. It's fast. Um, it's also simple. It's a few less pivots. So, well, well, no pivots, but like a few less moving parts. So less things that can break potentially. Um, but yeah, ran that with like a 38 chain ring, 1052 on the back, uh, which I found to be actually like a perfect gear. Um, was like enough, you know, on both ends. Um, and yeah, I don't know. There was nothing like super remarkable about the setup. It was pretty similar to what I've been racing on that year. I ran like the Mezcal 2.3 tires, um, which most people I spoke to before, they were like, oh, you only need like 2.0s or 2.1s. Or but I was really happy to have more tire because um, the bike's heavy, you know, and the less tire you have, the more you've got to nurse it on the downhills, um, which like no one really, I hate that feeling of like getting to a descent and just like spending the whole time like trying not to break anything. I was like, I like to be able to get to a descent and just like let it eat a bit. Um, so... Yeah, I was happy to have that much tire. I ran uh, inserts as well, um, which, like, again, is probably overkill, but enjoyed having it. And then had to swap just a rear tire. Um, just rear? Yeah, just had to just swap the rear uh, insulator halfway around, um, which I couldn't find a, another Mezcal, so I ended up on a, a Maxxis tire. Um I think it was a recon, um, which interestingly, like, didn't roll. And this is not, I'm not like trying to make a plug for Vittoria or whatever, but it did, not, it did roll noticeably slower, um, which I found was interesting. Like, because you get so in tune with the bike, I was like, oh, yeah, this tire kind of sucks a bit. It could have been because I'd eaten so much tread off the one before, too, that it was like basically <laughs> a slick, yeah. but turned it into a slick. <laughs> yeah. And- um, but yeah, switch tire there. I did pads. Um, actually, this was another mistake I made. Uh, I had like two spare sets of pads, um, but I switched multi-tools the day before because I thought I had like, I, I ran one that had like a few things that um, the other one didn't, but it didn't have, I think it's a two and a half. It's a two and a half or a three mil. It has one or not, and not the other. Anyway, that's what you need to pull a, um, a brake pad. And when I went to pull, because like I finally was like, had this horrible day in the mud uh, in Wyoming there. And then right when I crossed into Colorado, maybe like 60, 70 miles from, um, from Steamboat, I was like fully through the pads because I was really hoping to get to Steamboat. And I was like, oh, I'll just go to the bike shop there. It'll be nice. I'll like go and drink a coffee while someone can change my pads. So that'd be pretty sweet right now. Um, but then I could hear it like, I was like, all right, this, this, uh, here's the rear brake was really dead. Uh, no, front brake was totally dead. Uh, so I was like, all right, I'll flip it, pull the, um, pull the pads, found them in the, <laughs> in the bag. And then was like, all right, went to pull it. I was like, I did not have the right size Allen key. I was like, what amateur hour? Uh, so basically, I ended up having to loosen that that front uh, like brake caliper to get it to sit in a way where it wouldn't just make a heinous noise and then just not touch my front brake all the way to uh, steamboat. And 
the, yeah, I was like, knew how bad they were, but they said they were the worst ones they'd seen. Like, there was metal on metal, basically. Um, so, would definitely recommend switching them before that point. <laughs> um, but yeah, switched them there, and then they lasted fine. But it was, ba- it was basically the the mud just eats it up, you know. Um, like you, you basically your whole bike gets encased in mud, and you're not even braking. There's just mud in in that surface that you kind of have to. The only way to get it all out is to ride it out, and in that process, you just eat up equipment. And um, yeah, so yeah. Beyond that, um, I never flattered on that setup, um, and didn't really didn't break anything. Um, chain held together. Um, so yeah, everything I was happy with. I mean, except for the the derailleur um, stopped working for the last like thousand kilometers, um, which was less than ideal. Uh, but yeah, it's one of those things that anytime something's electronics, like there's a chance they break. Um, and this is like a wireless thing, so it basically. Mal- malfunctions. <laughs> um, that's like the nice way of putting it. Uh, stops working and then like periodically would like just come back to life. Um, but yeah, tried all the resets, had three different batteries. There was no, something happened internally um, that <laughs> basically it stopped working. So uh, I could kind of force it to different gears in a way. Um so I could like manually shift. Uh, and then I also, with like the spare spokes I had, um, I kind of worked out a way that I could almost shift on the bike in that like I could control the tension a bit. Um, so I could get like three three speeds in a way and then would sort of reset it. So I could kind of sh- shift it down um, like using the nipple on the spoke. Um like a different tension in there. Anyway, uh, it wasn't like ideal, but um, I think anytime you run electronic stuff, you run that risk. Um, and it's a hard, it's a hard like decision because ultimately it's like cables, you know, there's so much wear and with that much mud and stuff, like you, you'd run a similar risk of breaking something you know, um, and, and switching a cable, which uh, at least, I mean, I think doing it again, I would just run mechanical because uh, at least then you can fix it. It's very frustrating to have something that you just can't fix, you know, and then from there until the end of the route, there was no bike shop. Um, and even Silver City, it was Sunday morning, so all the bike shops were closed. Um, so, yeah, like the only way around that would be like, you either bring a spare derailleur, um, which is not, it's not a horrible option to be honest. <laughs> like I had room for it and like, they're not insanely heavy and it would be really nice to know you had one or you run mechanical and, and bring cables and like, then that's also, you know, pretty foolproof. So, um, yeah, that was the only thing that really malfunctioned. Um, so that, that definitely, slowed up the last thousand K um, and also took a bit of a toll on the knees, but you know, you can't expect, you can't expect nothing to, to break on a route like that. So, you know, end of the day, it's what it was. 
no, I mean, that seems pretty good, all things considered. And those trade-offs is interesting to say, kind of like you said, I mean, with a mechanical system, you are probably likely to have to at least mess with it a little bit at some point over the course of the thing, whereas likelihood of a failure with the electronics lower, but there's a lot less you can do about it if it does happen. And Yeah, exactly. And like the malfunction I had, I'd never seen that before. Um, and, you know, I, I like, I don't have a group set sponsor. So like, I'm happy to like say whatever about any kind of group set, you know, um, like I had like a DI2 gravel group set fail in Africa last year. Um, but a lot of that was down to like internal cabling and things that went wrong. And it was like a, basically something shorted and then just like fried the system. Um, and then that was in like the middle of Tanzania. So then it's like, all right, this is done. <laughs> you know, like I, I have one gear now. Um, so yeah, I, was, I, I figured that running a wireless setup, you don't really run that risk. Um, I thought the biggest issue that you could run into running like the SRAM is you have to change batteries a lot. Like the battery life isn't good. Um, and every time you do that, you run the risk of just like uh, getting dirt and stuff in that like battery interface. Um, and also then there's the chance that you would wear like the tabs that hold that thing in. So having like a, and initially I thought that's what the issue was that like, I'd worn the tab so much on the bottom, switching things out and having dirt in there that the battery wasn't holding on. So I tried like zip tying it on tighter um, and that wasn't the issue. Anyway, um, end of the day, it's just like electronic technology. It's like, it's very good, but it's still new. So like chances, and and not many people ride it like that, (laughs) you know? So like, you're always kind of like a bit of a test pilot doing something like that. So, um, yeah, it's hard to say what I would do. I, yeah, I would do a mechanical group set because, like, then I could fix it, you know? Like, the, the amount of energy I spent just being frustrated at it was probably as much as it cost me to being broken, you know? Because you, you kind of ride it in one gear for a while and you're like, there's got to be a way and you stop for five minutes and then you kick it and then you like, you know, like... Um, yeah, just like instead of just like, okay, it's broken, I'll switch a cable or adjust this, you know, limit screw or whatever. Uh, so like, um, anyway, that's what it was. Yeah. So it goes. And earlier you kind of mentioned, you'd imagine that you'd be doing it in maybe 15 days or something like that. Where along the line did it start to dawn on you that you might really be breaking the record here and when did that start to feel like a real possibility? Yeah, I wasn't like following uh, like the dot that I had versus, you know, the other time. I didn't look at any of that um, because like that stuff can just be distracting. Um, and I kind of, I don't, know, I don't know, it doesn't feel like you're going very fast, <laughs> you know, um, you're not like, Oh yeah, I'm cranking out here. It's like, it's just kind of the slow slog. Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of knew I was going quicker than the schedule I had. Cause like you, you, you just like, it's very obvious, right? Like, cause you're like, okay, I thought I'd get to here at 3 PM and it's like 
midday. So you're like, okay, I'm three hours ahead of that. And that was roughly for, I think it was like a 14-day idea of like, you know, if this takes 14 days, this is like roughly where I would be. Um, and then I was like, I can just adjust it from there. So that kind of, I was like, oh, I guess I'm going quicker. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It didn't feel like I was, because uh, you learn so much on the way, things go wrong, you waste time. Um, you kind of end up just thinking about like how much quicker you could do it, you know, <laughs> rather than like how quick you did do it. Uh, and there's so much going on, uh, especially you're doing it solo. So it's not like, you have that like, oh, there's someone chasing me or I'm chasing someone. Like that kind of element goes out of it. You're just kind of managing yourself. Um, And that like, I don't know, just going through that process, you're not thinking, uh, I guess, about your overall time. You're just sort of thinking about that moment of like, all right, I need to get to here Uh, or I'm riding this long stretch now. How do I feel? How fast do I think I can go? Um, is there a way I can make this better? Like, do I need to eat something? Do I need to, like, put more clothes on, take clothes off? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's very, I don't know. Um, it's just like a self-management thing rather than, like, the feeling you would have, like, I don't know, doing a time trial or something. So um, you're still, like, consciously trying to be quick, but uh, it's not like you feel like you're setting the world on fire. <laughs> you know, because like ultimately it's still like you're not riding very fast. So, um, yeah, it's a strange like – and because and I also I didn't know the route, you know, so you don't really have a gauge of like is this fast? I don't know. Like on this stretch, how long do people take through here, you know? Like um, there were sections where um, like the notes I'd had from a mate, they're like, oh, this is a hike up this bit and then – I get there and be like, oh, I could ride all this, you know, like this bit's rideable. Um, so then you're like, okay, I guess like that gives you some gauge. But then anyway, it just kind of took the whole stretch. And then you're also like, by the time you get to the end of like a ride like that, it doesn't take much for the wheels to fall off either, you know? So like even though you're like, oh, I've got this much time and this much distance, in theory, that it's going to be fast. But I also don't know the route at all from here. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if that last, like, 100 miles is, like, sand. Uh, so, like, maybe that bit takes really long. Um, and also then, like, something like, yeah, your derailleur stops working and you start to feel like you're just crawling along and you're like, oh, I'm never going to get there now. You know, so, like, yeah, I don't know. You never, like comfortable feeling like you're going quicker. Um, but it was nice to like finish and then be like, oh, wow, that was actually a lot faster than uh, A, like I thought I could do and B, I thought I was going really. Yeah. No, it has to be a cool feeling and certainly hell of an accomplishment. So congrats again for pulling it off. Yeah, but then again, it's one of those things you just like – straight away you're like oh wow there's some time like i think to ride it under 12 days um is like very possible i wouldn't be surprised to see someone do that like uh next year when they race now because i i think like 
the way I approached it in terms of sleep too was ultimately faster. You know, I think like um, over that distance, it's such a long race that I think like with that consistent rest, like even though early on you kind of pay for it, I think in terms of if you were in a mass start environment, I think you'd probably be like tempted to skip that. But like I think if people sort of stick to that that way of approaching it, uh, they'll ultimately go faster, you know, and then having the experience on the route, not making small mistakes here and there, knowing what to bring, those little things. Um, yeah, I'm excited to see now that like there's potentially like a different approach that like to see, you know, fire go back into that like record chasing. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that goes for sure. And well, I mean, should like get going here pretty soon, but anything else is kind of, kicking around the back of your mind as being the next thing along these lines that you might want to take a crack at or too early to be talking about that right now? Yeah, no, like I always have lots of different um, ideas. Like there's a a long list of things I'd love to go and do still. Um, To be honest, I'd love to go and ride the divide again, Uh, like once fast and once slow. Um, But yeah, I think like next year would be maybe too soon to go and do that again. Um, I'm having a lot of fun like with the the new like racing lifetime series in the US is a lot of fun. Um, it's cool to like be able to mix it up with the guys who are, who are going really quick in those gravel and mountain bike races. So I'm enjoying that. Um, so that'll still be a focus of next year. Uh, and it's cool to see that part of cycling growing. I think um, it's a cool space to like kind of be involved with. Uh, but then in terms of long stuff, like um, I've still haven't ridden the Arizona trail. That's like another big one I'd love to tick off in, in the States. Um, but the, the one thing I have like in my head at the moment is to do like a season of just um, like linking everything by bike and trying to put together like a race season, but only riding. Um, I think that would be really like for me, for whatever reason, I'm like, I think that'd be a cool way to put things together. Um, because like currently I do a lot of travel and I do a lot of racing and, um, it's like, I don't know. It it makes everything very, um, like disjointed in a way that like everything's a bit like uh, of a whirlwind and it's hard to process things. And I don't think like as humans, we're really supposed to <laughs> like experience life in that way. We kind of duck in and out of like different time zones and different places. And um, it's a cool, cool, like I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that. And like, I love being able to experience different places and races and, and, travel in that way but um i'd love to see how different the experience could be if you were still ambitious about a race season but you just like packed everything on your bike and approached it that way um so yeah that's something that's like high on my list of like things to do uh and then at some point i would like to do an around the world ride um i don't i'm not like fast about that record to be honest like the um like that supported record 
uh, is not like super appealing. Um, well, actually, it's not appealing at all. It was at some point I thought it was, and then the more I like was honest with myself, I was like, that's not for you. Um, so yeah, but that'll be. Um, I'd love to just yeah like either one just for myself I'd like to do it um, like ride an around the world route that truly you kind of hit everything um, it's just such a big project and I also would love to do it in a way where you are seeing like the good riding <laughs> you know because um, like to rush through places um, seems like a waste so yeah that's something that's like in the in the back of my mind um but i think like from yeah the concept of that to like the realization of that and probably take a few years of planning um but yeah that's something that i'd like to take off before i you know have to go and get a real job <laughs> <laughs> yeah well certainly a bunch of cool ideas in there and looking forward to following along with whatever it is that out of that that comes next. Thanks, man. Thanks again for coming on and congrats again on the tour divide record. That was really impressive. And thanks for sharing it because just been a fun conversation. And I think some really good insights into what it takes to do something like that. So very much appreciate it. Yeah. Cheers, man. Of course. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in your favorite podcast player to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Lachlan for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.